Hello and welcome to Get Me Another, a podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. Heroes and fools are the same thing. (laughs) It's true, they are the same thing. This is episode five in our series, Get Me Another Conan the Barbarian, and it's Roger Corman week here on Get Me Another. Today we'll be looking at two films from producer Roger Corman, whose first sword and sorcery effort, Sorceress, we discussed in our third episode. This week we're following Roger down to Argentina, where he made a number of films over the course of the 80s, including both of today's movies. First up is 1983's Deathstalker. Journey to an age of great kingdoms. An age of awesome magic. An age of terrifying evil. Where one man sought the key to the ultimate power. He was the man they called Deathstalker. Reunite the three powers. You will be power. A brave man could get inside one car's castle and kill it. If he can capture the amulet of life, he will rule the world. But an evil wizard stands in his path. And to the victor, a beautiful princess. Greatest challenge. The greatest adventure. The most legendary hero of them all. The man they called Deathstalker. The last great warrior king. Starring Richard Hill and Bobby Bennett. Written by Howard R. Cohen and directed by John Watson, Deathstalker was the second sword and sorcery film produced by Roger Corman following Sorceress, which we discussed in episode three. The success of Sorceress, which grossed around $4 million on a $500,000 budget, prompted Corman to continue making films in this genre. Whereas Sorceress was shot in Mexico, Deathstalker was produced in Argentina to cut costs even further, and it was the first of 10 films Corman would make in Argentina over the course of the next decade. It stars Rick Hill as Deathstalker, Barbie Benton, Richard Brooker, Bernard Earhart, and Lana Clarkson. Uh, Richard Brooker, by the way, Rob, played Jason Voorhees in Friday the 13th, Part 3. Amazing, amazing. Uh, And a great Jason, I will say. Absolutely. I I think one of the best. Um, That was the first first movie where Jason put on the hockey mask, for those out there uh, who who don't know. Courtesy of Shelley. Absolutely. Courtesy of Shelley and an icon was born. Death Soccer, Rob. Uh, It's a... 
It's a heck of a thing. It is. But I want to acknowledge, because you're going to hear me say a lot of uh, perhaps unkind things about this movie. So I want to start. Uh, my daughter in elementary school, they say there, there are, uh, you know, roses and thorns. Yeah. You didn't show your daughter Deathstalker. Please, please tell me you did not. You got you to gotta get into the upper echelons of elementary school. Uh, no, she will never see Deathstalker. But <laughs> my rose for Deathstalker... Uh, if you'd listen to our Beastmaster episode, you might remember that the character's actually called, what, Dar? I Dar, think. yes. But I said I wasn't going to waste time saying Dar, and I was just going to call him Beastmaster. Well, guess what, folks? Deathstalker knows what movie it is. Yes. It doesn't give the character a dumb name that I'm just going to forget and call him Deathstalker anyway. His name is Deathstalker, and I will say big Big props to that. It's it, yes. first name, first name, death, last name, stalker. Sometimes people just call him stalker. Uh, I guess it's like Paul Rudd on Friends. First name, crap, last name, bag. We open Death Stalker with, you know, like Sorceress, we open sort of in the middle of the action. We open with what looked like a group of mutants or something attacking a bandit. I don't know if they're supposed to be mutants or or what, but I guess it was whatever makeup prosthetics they had. They kind of looked like mutants. Um, the bandit, by the way, peer, appears to have abducted a woman and, you know, for purposes of... of uh, of rape. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, unfortunately there's going to be a lot of weird sexual stuff in death stalker. Um, like I said, it is a movie. Nobody's daughter should see. <laughs> no. And I, I, I will say death stalkers trigger warning needs a trigger warning. There is so much like crazy violence against women and vile stuff in this movie. And, and to that end, if you don't want to hear any of that, um, if you are on a podcasting, uh, a player that uh, that works with podcast chapters, um, you can just go to the next one. If you don't want to hear a bunch of crazy violence against women and stuff of that nature, uh, you can skip ahead. That that option is there. That's why I put these chapters in here. Uh, or, or if you want to avoid spoilers as well. So. Absolutely, yes. Our, our requisite spoiler warning uh, should apply for those people you know who are who who are intrigued by Deathstalker. You know, maybe now is the time to. Uh, to pause it and uh, and and move on, uh, but you know, again, we're, we're always here, so feel free to pause it and come on back for uh, for Deathstalker. Oh boy, Deathstalker! So anyway, so you have this this band of mutant men who are trying to kill the bandit and abduct the woman. That is until Deathstalker intervenes. And Deathstalker, he drives off the mutants, as one might expect. But what does he do next, Rob? He kills the bandit, and he proceeds to put the moves on the woman, who must at this point be entirely traumatized. Yeah, because this is the third essential uh, sexual assault on her. Uh, in a row. In a span of, uh, yeah, in a row. So you, you have the one bandit, then you have the mutant guys, and now you have Deathstalker, except... This time, instead of being an abject terror, Chris, because this is Deathstalker and our ostensible hero, what is her reaction to the third assault attempt? Well, well, she she seems to be, you know, a little bit more, you know, she's not as 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 obviously terrified of Deathstalker because you know he's a he cuts a he cuts a, a figure, but uh, he's distracted and she immediately slips away. <laughs> Like as soon as somebody else comes up behind him and it's like Deathstalker, hey, how you doing? And and Death's and she's she's out of there. So she wasn't into Deathstalker. She just 
uh, he wasn't as objectively terrifying as the mutant men. Yeah, and that, I think, is, that could be the subtitle for this movie, Deathstalker, <laughs> not as abjectly terrifying as the literal villains. Yes, uh, <laughs> uh, that's, um, I mean, I gotta, you know, Rick Hill, I gotta say, is is, is in good shape. Uh, they saddle him with this blonde wig, which, I I, I mean, looks like Ator the Fighting <laughs> Eagle cosplay. Ator. 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 <laughs> It's a running gag now. Um, yeah, it's it's like Ator the Fighting Eagle. But whereas that guy had like, it was like his hair and it was beautiful. You know, here it's just a terrible, terrible wig. And, uh, and that doesn't help anything. So Deathstalker is called upon by the former king who had his throne stolen by the wizard Munkar. And now has had his daughter taken as well. And he wants Deathstalker to sneak into the castle and kill the usurper. And here's the thing. I'm not sure if Deathstalker agrees to do that or not. In fact, that's the crux of the problem. Is he on a quest or isn't he? I'm not really sure. At times it feels like he's forgotten or just got really bored. It's all very murky and I'm I'm unclear on everything. Yeah, I mean, uh, from top to bottom, I would say, and, and again, my, my requisite um, disclaimer, which is that when I, when I talk about the work, I'm not necessarily talking about the anyone who made it or their personalities or their what they would be capable of under different circumstances. Of course. This is clearly a movie that looked very rushed at every stage. Um I would imagine that would include this the script writing stage. Um but this is for instance like the lighting in this. It just looks like lighting where you don't have time to do anything. Every it's all lit. Right. It's, it's all like, well, in that you can see it, but it it feels like it's flat, like eighties TV lighting. Yeah. No, I had that, that same thought, which again, it it would be professional. I mean, it's professional, but it's just not, there was no time for them to do interesting things. Um, And I would say that, uh, you know, that would include things like figure out if Deathstalker is actually on a quest or not. Yeah, I'm not clear on that. Eventually, he, he comes across this this wizard, witch that I think he knows. I'm, again, not clear. And he learns of the three powers of creation. Three objects that, I gotta be honest, I have no idea what they actually do. But they sound pretty powerful. They are. They glow. They, they glow, glow. Chris. They, they are, glow on screen. They glow on screen. That is absolutely right. They are the amulet of light the chalice of magic, and the sword of justice. Now, if you think this movie is going to be a quest to find these magical items, perhaps a race between Deathstalker and the forces of Munkar to find them, that is not what this movie is. Um, It happens, Munkar already has two of the three objects, the chalice and the amulet, so it's up to Deathstalker to find the sword, which he does almost immediately. (laughs) And the best part about finding that sword, uh, I think it's in the cave. Yes. He gets thrown the sword in the cave, and then he catches it. It glows as he's holding it up, literally like the He-Man cartoon. Literally. And he just says, the third power. <laughs> <laughs> like an idiot. Like, it. it's literally just like, I'm going to remind you. Remember what the witch just said? The third, this is the third power. Yeah. Oh, okay. You got it? All right. Well, we skipped over the fact that he encounters the puppet in a cave. Uh, and the puppet is the thief who stole the sword and has been cursed ever since. And he, for a moment, he and the puppet fight an ogre. Um, but that mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that goes, you know, that's over very quickly. And then 
they for a moment Deathstalker turns into a young boy for reasons I don't understand, and and the puppet takes a nosedive into the lake. And, and then comes up a human being who tags along with Deathstalker for the rest of the movie, but doesn't really do anything. Well, it, it's very clear from the prophecy that only a small boy would lead the puppet out of the cave to then uh, that, break the magic cell. Is that what the and prophecy then, is? Uh, that's what the guy says. The puppet yeah. says, I think. Like half says? I don't know. I was on my phone part of the time. The Chris. third power. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, I, well, so I guess Deathstalker, it's weird. I it, And it's not even weird in a surreal way. It's just weird. Um, <laughs> anyway, Deathstalker soon meets up with two other warriors, the young Ogress and Kyra, played by Lana Clarkson. Now, a word on Kyra. At first, she appears cloaked, and she kind of gets the drop on Ogress, and, and both Deathstalker and Ogress assume that she's a man, but she is very much not, because... Kyra rarely wears a shirt, and I mean rarely. Um, and that said, I actually think Lana Clarkson is really great in this movie. She's the most compelling presence in the movie, and she's not in it enough, to be perfectly honest. And there's a reason why Corman made Clarkson the star of another Argentine-made sword and sorcery movie, Barbarian Queen. But she's really good. Yeah, she is, and her cloak game is on point, I will say. Oh, yeah. She's, um, yeah. She doesn't have a shirt on underneath it, but the cloak, yeah, it's amazing. Yes, and my uh, my favorite part here of it is that Ogris also is kind of like bare midriff. Yeah, he's kind of got a half shirt. Yeah. He's got the half shirt that covers the top, but but leaves his abs exposed. Yeah, and, and, and this sequence, there's uh, one of my favorite technical moments uh, in the movie, which again, I think just shows you uh, they had no time for this thing. Yeah. Uh, it's during a fight uh, where Deathstalker... Uh, he comes in and he saves the day with um, Agris. At one point in their fighting, there's this one shot where you just see a sword blade in close up. It's static. The blade is not moving. It's just like in the middle of the frame. And then it looks like someone just squirts ketchup all over it. <laughs> and that's too, that's yeah. your implied like close up of sword fighting and, and blood and guts. And like, there's no cutting of anything. It's just like, yep, shot of a sword, squirt ketchup on it. <laughs> now cut to a uh, uh, cut back to the action, and it's the weirdest thing. Um, but I mean, look, when you're running and gunning, you do what you have to do. Absolutely. I get that, but it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the obviously rushed production schedule is not this movie's biggest problem. Listen, I can take a movie with with that has technical faults. I don't. It doesn't bother me. But the the rest of this, like, it's not in service of a story or characters that are interesting. It's not, you know, it's not like classic Doctor Who where it's like, oh yeah, that's a monster made out of, of, of bubble wrap. But because I like the story and I like the characters, I'm willing to overlook technical deficiencies. This is not that. It's just kind of a, you know, it's like, it, it's the most sort of pedestrian story that I, I don't even follow most of the time. Yeah. I mean, it's... Like, why does everybody know Deathstalker? Everyone knows Deathstalker, man. Everyone knows Deathstalker. Yeah, like, tell me about the legend of Deathstalker. Tell me what he's done in the past. Um, or not. Uh, but it's just weird. Honestly, this might have been a movie that, that benefited from an opening narration telling you the legend <laughs> of Deathstalker. Yeah, and he's not phased by the fact that, again, literally everyone in this world, he will walk into a hut 
or up to a dirt mound and people will go, oh, Death hey, Deathstalker. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> Deathstalker. Um, Augurus and, and Kyra are going to Munkar's castle for a tournament in which the winner will be declared Munkar's heir. And Deathstalker decides to go with them to the castle, presumably still on his quest, although I'm honestly not sure if he is. But at this point, the movie becomes a sword and sorcery version of Enter the Dragon, which sounds awesome, but I guarantee you is not. No, the, the best part, though, is Lord Munkar's costuming and makeup. Oh, my God. Because He's this bald. guy looks like a cut-rate mentalist from Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> he's bald, and he's got like a snake tattoo on the side of his head. And it, it's honestly, Rob, you should do that. You should. <gasps> That's a Halloween costume for you. Uh, it, oh, it my is. God. But then that would alert people to the fact that I've seen Deathstalker. <laughs> We, we should, that should be, you know, yeah, that should be in our merch store. If we ever had merch, you know, just a t-shirt. Yes, I admit I've seen Deathstalker. Oh, I thought you meant we should do the temporary head tattoo. Oh my God. Monkar's tattoo. Yes. Yeah. We don't have a merch store. Uh, we would, uh, at some point, maybe we, we should, I don't know, but and we respect well, copyright. I'm sure that Monkar tattoo. Oh yeah. That's still the one to sell it. Yeah. Oh, anyway, I have to mention, by the way, that uh, Deathstalker and Kyra have a sex scene here. Um, and, and if it feels that my mention is perfunctory and tacked on, so is the scene. Yeah, but the important part is that he kind of creeps up on her in the middle of the night while she's sleeping <laughs> and just starts doing stuff that may or may not be wanted. Uh, it does turn out that she then is like, ooh, yeah, baby. Um, but you know, Deathstalker, oh, he, you know, he just he go he goes where the wind blows him. Uh, oh, and Magic Cave Troll guy is looks is looking on at the end of that. Oh yeah, you get the shot of him, and he's like watching them, and he looks rather pleased by what he's seeing. Yeah, that's yeah. I forgot that that he's watched because I forgot because he doesn't do anything else in the film except watch. I don't know, man. He's a peeper. Yeah, it is. Uh, who boy. That that being said, he's been in a cave for thirty years, so you know it's. I mean, I guess I, you know, but it's still not appropriate. Uh, it's it's understandable, perhaps, but not appropriate. No, I mean, if you had something that was a little more kind of like fun, maybe there was a prize involved, something like I don't know, like naked mud wrestling, that would be appropriate, I'm sure, in a film like this. Rob, Rob, this is a serious sword and sorcery film. We're not going to have mud wrestling. Come on, what is what is the matter with you? Now, next, they arrive at Monkar's castle or what appears to be Southern California's Renaissance Pleasure Fair, because that's what it looks like. <laughs> if you've ever been there, you'll know. They're just missing the pickles. <laughs> oh, yes. And and the big turkey legs. Oh, my goodness. I, oh, those, those are turkey great. legs are amazing. Yeah. Um, we will definitely be seeing this outdoor set in multiple movies. Um Believe me. Anyway, Munkar's throne room indeed does have a mud wrestling pit in the center. And, uh, you know, this man, I don't even know what to say. It's, it's got mud wrestling in it. It's got, it's got some just sort of decorative mud wrestling. And, and you know, the Munkar offers food and wine and the use of his harem, which includes the deposed king's daughter. And the whole scene, before long, turns into a complete free-for-all like something out of professional wrestling. Let's just say that this devolves rather quickly into a, a session of who is going to use Munkar's harem of women and to what purposes, none of them good. 
And this is the point in the film where I'm like, look, I get that a lot of these movies, uh, especially in the low budget realm, uh, traffic in sexual titillation uh, and, and that sort of thing. But this one, it just often feels like it might've been aimed at 14 year old boys, but it was aimed at the 14 year old boy who snaps the necks of kittens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, Whoa, dude. Like the, even for this, even for this genre and area, it feels rather extreme. Um, yeah. Yeah. And let, let me say this about that because our next film also has some, some bare breasts, but it doesn't feel the same way. It doesn't have the same kind of streak of meanness that Deathstalker has. And, and I think that that is, um, it's the, it's the POV of the movie, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's our, our next, and we'll talk about it more, but there is the, are the bad guys doing something and we're supposed to not like it? Or is everything that results in a, uh, a woman without a top on is supposed to be titillating no matter the violent context. of Exactly. It. And that's what I think is the issue for me with death stalker. Um, you know, cause, cause look, I'm an adult guy. I've, I've seen a lot of these things. I'm not surprised by female nudity in these movies. Don't get me wrong. Right. We, we could debate. That's a whole separate issue, right. but that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, yes. 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 To all of that. Uh, yes to, to yes to all of that. Yeah. I, Oh, by the way, I should mention that Deathstalker's in the castle. You know, he spends time there. I, I don't know if he's still looking for the other two powers held by Monkar. Like I think he is, but I'm, I'm genuinely not sure. Um, Monkar decides nevertheless to kill Deathstalker. And in order to do that, and this, this was really something he turns, he transforms through magic one of his men into the princess, like into the image of the princess in order to get the jump on him. And of course, as the guy is turning into the princess, he starts to feel himself up as he grows, as he grows breasts. It's, uh, it is so weird. <laughs> it is, but at least it was interesting. Yes. I, I was like, it was, it, it's an interesting move. Yes. And, and certainly not how I would have played it, but I'm like, well, you're get, look, that, that something is happening. Uh, besides weird fight dancing. This leads to a fight in the castle where um, there's a fight in the hallway and, and Kyra is killed in the course of the fight. And that's it. She's never mentioned again. She's the most interesting character in the thing. She's killed off. And it's like, did they only have Lana Clarkson for X number of days? So it was like, okay, we can, you know, we can only pay her for X number of days. So we're just going to kill her off midway through the movie. Like, I wasn't even sure, despite the fact that she's the most compelling presence in the movie, I'm not sure why her character was in it to begin with. Well, I'm very certain why her character was in it to begin with. Yes, Chris. yes. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I, yes, I'm not, it's, you know, I shouldn't be giving you the babe in the woods <laughs> yeah. routine, Rob. You know, I, I, I should know better. I've been around. And I forgot, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna belabor this point because I, <laughs> I noticed something because we're, we're pretty deep into the movie at this point. And I have a, I have a note here that I, I forgot about that oh, I do please. want to share. I'm, I, I rarely read my notes, but uh, this time. <laughs> I said, watching Death Soccer, I think I can finally imagine how Siskel and Ebert felt watching Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I like I I don't like feeling like some like old scold or something. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> 
it's uh, you know, hey, listen, we we've done pretty well in this. Yeah. I, I we've had some really good movies in this series so far. Oh, totally, uh, much yeah. to our surprise, it was only a matter of time before we hit a death stock. You know, it it, ha- it happened much sooner in our Get Me Another Star Wars series, where you know we we got to some 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 uh, some not so great movies fairly early. Um, <laughs> yes. Anyway, we we get we do have a twist. We have a plot twist, Rob, in this movie. We do have a plot twist that Agras actually turns out to be working for Munkar, and he lured Dex- Deathstalker to the castle. But of course, I think Deathstalker was going there anyway, so who the hell cares? But I suppose Munkar didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And Deathstalker totally kills that dude. Yeah, he totally kills that dude, and then uh, he has a fight with a pig man, which is, is reasonably good. It's a reasonably good fight with a pig man. And, and then, oh, the twist with the tournament is that Munkar is using the tournament to lure the strongest warriors in the land to fight until there's only one. And then he's going to kill that guy and eliminate all his rivals. It feels like it might be clever, but I, I'm i not sure. Or maybe it's just the illusion of clever. Well, it'd be more clever uh, if it wasn't surrounded by a bunch of hogwash. Um <laughs> But uh, is that is that a reference to the pig man? It is. It is. Thank you very much. Uh, dad joke time. Uh, there, I, I, I'm going to give Death Soccer another rose, though. Here, right? Please. I've been talking nothing but thorns for a while. Uh, that weird meat puppet in a box. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention the meat puppet in a box that Lord Munkar has, it, that he feeds human fingers to. That thing's excellent. I don't know where where it came from or what it is. Yeah, Munkar appears to have this pet that is like again, it's this it looks just like a a blob of meat that he keeps in a box and he feeds body parts to, including like eyes and stuff, and it is it is cool and uh you know, hey, that's something we could we could make on our our store, you know, put a put a meat puppet for sale for the kids, you know, buy the Deathstalker yeah. meat puppet and uh terrorize your children. Well, you want to talk about uh legacy sequels? <laughs> uh I want I want to know more about this meat puppet, Chris. <laughs> It's a spinoff about the meat puppet. Um, we yeah. Then we're getting to the end of the movie. Deathstalker finds the other powers, and and there's a final confrontation, um, which gets they get transported to the outdoor set because you want to use that. You you put a lot of money into that outdoor set. You sure as heck want to use it one more time. Um, this time it's night. There's a kind of cool bit where with multiple monk cars where he he makes yeah. like duplicates of himself, and that worked really well actually. But in the end. Deathstalker, like you don't, th- you think there's going to be a fight or something, but Deathstalker just kind of walks up and takes the chalice from him, and and that's that. Like he then he rather than wielding the power himself, Deathstalker decides that man has been ruled by them for too long, and he destroys them. Now, how he does this? He just kind of holds all three up above his head, and they disappear, and that's how he destroys the the powers. And then we cut to a freeze frame of Deathstalker, and we're out. And and this is uh, after uh, he did not kill Lord Munkar himself. He threw him down to the people who then yeah, kind the of people. ripped Munkar apart. They, they, I mean, it's kind of like a drawn quartering. Uh, yeah, that's right. They do draw like. and quarter Munkar. I, I did, I, yes, I did gloss over the drawing and quarter. And it's not unlike the scene in Hundra where the women uh, basically you know, kill the... the uh, you know, the, the, the temple pimp in Hundra. So it's, it's, it's not unlike that. Um, you know, it works well enough. You see a little more of it here and the effect is actually like, that looks like one of the areas where they may have spent a little time in dough. 
on yeah. the uh, the ripping apart of Munkar and it, you know. Hey, look, I like horror movies too, so I, that that sort of thing I can appreciate. It 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 worked, and, and and here's the thing: like, I, I obviously we didn't really care for Deathstalker all that much, um, and it, it it's it's kind of like this: it's like it's got the the lower production values of something like Ator the Fighting Eagle, but it lacks the charm. There's a slightly innocent charm to Ator that Deathstalker is complete is completely absent in Deathstalker, and that's where it's like, well, Deathstalker, ah, Deathstalker. That's my that's my take on it. I, it doesn't feel like anyone had fun making this movie or was excited to make it or watching it. That could be completely wrong. It could have been Mardi Gras on set and everyone was having a great time. I don't know, but it just it feels joyless to me. Yeah, uh, which with a movie like this. It's supposed to be kind of like crazy fun, you know. Yeah, no, I I, I agree one hundred percent. It's it just if if you're you know if you're not bringing spectacle, you've got to bring joy. If you're not bringing joy or spectacle, well, what are we doing? That said, Deathstalker was successful enough at the box office that about a year after its release in September of 1983 came Corman's next entry in the sword and sorcery genre that was shot on many of the same sets as Deathstalker, although it turned out to be quite a different film. From 1984, this is The Warrior and the Sorceress. Journey now to an age undreamed of, an age of mystery and magic. Of swords and sorcery. The warrior and the sorceress on a planet lit by twin suns. Evil warlords battle to control the fate of an entire dynasty. A mighty warrior rises out of legend to free an enslaved sorceress. There was a time when I could command. And I would obey. Together, they forged the mystical sword whose blade cannot be broken. The ultimate struggle between good and evil. Sorcery. Dungeons. I don't want cheap. David Carradine in The Warrior and the Sorceress. The Warrior and the Sorceress was directed by John C. Broderick and written by Broderick and William Stout. Now, John C. Broderick had a long career in the film industry in a variety of roles, including as the supervising editor of The Exorcist. Uh, The film was one of the first released by New Horizons, the company founded by Roger Corman after he sold New World Pictures, and was originally developed under the titles Dark Sword of Tor and Cane of the Dark Planet. Let me say from the start, I like this film way more than Death Star. Absolutely. I mean, from the get-go, look, you, you, you will still see the budgetary seams in this movie. Yeah. But the opening sequence with the titles where Kane is wandering the desert plains, um, you know, and, it, and look, you're, you're definitely, it's trading off of uh, David Carradine's television uh, kung fu vibes. There. Absolutely. But- 
but you're getting like well-composed shots that, yeah. that, that look good just in, in the framing and, and everything. Um, so right off the bat, you just feel like you're in much, much different hands with this. Uh, and, and, and throughout there's a lot of visually interesting stuff in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, first of all, I should say this is the first film we've watched in the series that is explicitly set on another world as evidenced by the twin suns in the sky. But in terms of tone and style, it's very much in keeping with other fantasy films we've watched. There's no blending of sci-fi elements as you see in films like Masters of the Universe or Krull or one of our favorites, You're the Hunter from the Future. Oh, I got we got to get more people to listen to our our your the hunter from the future episode from Get Me Another Star Wars because it is it is I think one of our finest hours and uh, it, because your is a lesser known film. Folks at home, if you listen to this, go check out Your the Hunter from the Future. Um it is uh, it's a delight and our episode episode 7 of Get Me Another Star Wars is uh is one of our one of our finest hours if I do not say so myself. We should just get this fact out of the way first. The Warrior and the Sorceress is a sword and sorcery version of Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Flat out, that is what this movie is doing. This is not new territory for Corbin, as you know, his film Battle Beyond the Stars was a sci-fi take on Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai. Of course, both Seven Samurai and Yojimbo inspired westerns with The Magnificent Seven and A Fistful of Dollars, respectively. And frankly, Yojimbo is essentially a samurai version of Dashiell Hammett's novel Red Harvest. So, you know, hey, time is a flat circle and nothing is truly original. Uh, it's not about where you start. It's about the journey that you take. Absolutely. And you could say that this, uh, like You're the Hunter from the Future, frankly, this is a movie that you could place amongst at the cross section of, of many different trends, right? Yes. Um, because it's taking from, from so many different sources. Uh, I, you know, it definitely belongs uh, probably most in the uh, Conan, the barbarian uh, trend, because that's what it is doing. But, you know, hey, if we ever do a get me another man with no name series, I think uh, we could totally put it there. This definitely has uh, more of the trappings of the spaghetti Western. Absolutely. uh, Then it's taking more from Leone than it is taking from... uh, from Kurosawa in that respect. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of fusing, you know, the Western and the sword and the sorcery film. And it's interesting that way. You watch this movie and especially with the score uh, for it, which feels oftentimes more appropriate for a spaghetti Western than it does for a sword and sorcery film. And I just, uh, I, I once true, true to form, Chris, I did no research. Uh, <laughs> But I would imagine that Quentin Tarantino would have liked this movie and that it's possible. Yes. That it's possible. You you get some Kill Bill vibes off of this thing in the most superficial manner. Absolutely. No, I I, totally. This is not doing any of the the fighting in Kill Bill or anything like that. But um, Well, the next time I see Quentin Tarantino, I'm going to ask him and be like, hey, listen, are you a fan of the warrior and the sorceress? The film stars David Carradine and Maria Sakas in the two title roles, as well as Luke Askew, Anthony DeLongas, Harry Towns, and Guillermo Marin. We open with David Carradine as the wandering warrior Kane, who arrives at the village of Yamatar, which is dominated by two warlords, Zeg and Balkaz. So... Zeg's warrior control the village's one water source. It's a well located right in the main square. And if this exterior set looks familiar, 
You just saw it in Deathstalker. Ding, 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 not, ding. not more than a few minutes ago if you're watching these movies back to back. Yeah, I love uh, the two tyrants. Zag yeah. is like an evil Tom Smothers with a like, cross with flea, maybe. <laughs> yes! And then and then Balkaz is, is essentially a uh a, a Baron Harkonnen type. Uh, yeah, Balkaz is is like he reminds me of human Jabba deleted from Star Wars. Yeah, and, and both of the villains, I think, do a great job being yeah. villains in this thing. Um they're actually fun to watch and compelling. Um ah, it the same Really goes for David Carradine. Yes. Uh, and a joy to see a, a lead like him, uh, you know, uh, especially after Deathstalker. And it's interesting, you know, I, uh, when we'd had Ryan on, he talked about, you know, Corman didn't always want to pay to have the name mm. uh, in, in Sorceress with Jack Hill. Uh, but, and look, I am as well aware as anyone that uh, meritocracy is not always the rule of the day. And just because someone has a name doesn't necessarily mean that their work is great. But the opposite is also true. Yeah. That a lot of people do have a name because they are good. And yes. it, watching David Carradine in almost every single scene in this movie, just that alone makes this thing so much more fun to watch. Absolutely. David Carradine instantly elevates this movie. And and as you said before, his wandering warrior is certainly a spin on his character from Kung Fu, but it's a role he knows how to play and he does it really well. In fact, both characters are named Kane, although the, there's different spellings. Uh, and I want to mention, we only know the, his character name from the warrior and the sorceress from the credits. It's never actually said in the movie. No, most people call him what, the dark one? Yeah, or, the dark uh, one, uh, you know, because he's got a dark cloak and and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but he's certainly, like, that character the, uh, certainly has an interior life that is, that is entirely eluded Deathstalker. Like, it, it, there's a bit where after Kane avoids a fight when he first comes to town... And another character says to him, oh, you're fortunate I saw you. They'd have killed you. And the look on Carradine's face of, you know, he doesn't say it out loud, but of, yeah, right, pal. It's so good. I also want to mention, at the time of shooting, David Carradine had apparently punched a wall and as a consequence, broken his right hand. So he needed to learn to sword fight with his left hand. And the gauntlet that he wears in the film on his right hand conceals the cast. I will say I had no idea. Uh, number one, because I do no research. But number two, <laughs> because it, it it plays pretty well. Yeah. I would not have known. I, I I didn't notice that he was doing things left handed. It didn't look any any more odd than any of you know anything else in this movie. Absolutely. There's also I, I think it's interesting about this movie. There's hints at a wider backstory for Kane and this world. Like there's a symbol on the hilt of Kane's sword that's also found in the archway of the village, and there's a conversation indicating he might have been part of some greater authority in this world, but that that um, that those days are long past, and and that any kind of outside you know, government or, or, or authority has long since vanished and he is just on his own. Yeah. Well, the sorceress clearly knows him and makes reference to the fact that there was a time when she would command. Yes. And he would obey, but that time is long past, but not for super long. It's going to come back again no, for no. sure. 
Kane soon takes care of the guards around the well uh, and pretty pretty handily, and he and he opens up the water to the whole village at least briefly. But then he meets he soon meets with Zeg's enemy Balkaz and makes a deal to lead Bal's forces against Zeg the next day in exchange for gold. Uh, but he also, of course, overhears Bal plotting against him. You know that once Zeg has been dealt with, we can get rid of this this dark warrior. And I'm just saying, if you're plotting against your dark warrior, who's going to lead your forces into battle the next day. Don't do it where he can hear you. Yeah, you might want to wait for someone, like, wait five minutes, maybe? Yeah, like, wait like, five minutes. Let, let him get to his room, um, <laughs> not just like he's opening the door and you're like, yeah, we're going to kill that guy. But we need to talk about, in this scene, we need to talk about one of my favorite things in this movie, Rob. Oh, I, I know. it's You it, know what it is. You know what's coming. The first time we see Balkaz, he's lounging on this giant sofa slash throne. And he's got this lizard behind him. And it's clearly a puppet, and it's awesome. But as the scene goes on, Bal keeps talking to the lizard and asking him questions and getting answers back. And we don't understand what the lizard says, but it's clear that he's not just Bal's pet. He's a trusted advisor and confidant, and I love it. Yeah, this just really continues the Jabba the Hutt comparisons, where this is his... Yes. It's kind of his salacious crumb combined with um, with a sleeve stack. Oh my, yeah, yeah. And I, this is I didn't realize this was going to be Puppet Week on getting another Conan <laughs> the Barbarian, but I will say I'm glad that it is because the puppets are in both of the movies uh, are amazing. But this this puppet is, this is far great. superior because oh my god, there it, it goes places. It actually matters for the story. It really does, and we're going to come back surprising. to that in a minute because there's a yeah, scene. Yeah. It, there's a scene that I love with with the lizard, but we have to we have to get there. But my god, the lizard advisor, confidant, friend of Balkaz is fantastic. Um, and I honestly wish we had more sentient reptiles uh, in the world today. Uh, that would be I'd be all for that. And puppets. And puppets, honestly. Uh, so anyway, the next day, Kane turns on Bal because he lets him know that he heard him, you know, planning to betray him. And he soon shows up at Zeg's stronghold. Now, a couple of notes about Zeg. He's much more of a straightforward a-hole than Bal Kaz. Like, he's just, he's a clear jerk. Um, he's holding Nadja the sorceress in hopes that she will be able to forge a magical weapon called the Sword of Ura. And he also likes to drown people in this giant glass tank that he has in his castle. And he and, and he just he drops them in there and like watches them drown, and that's his his means of entertainment. And isn't it ironic, Chris, that in this time of lack of water, she should drown from abundance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is it. Yes, indeed. She did. <laughs> Uh, we should also point out that both warlords are in the slave trade with a group of slavers that come through periodically. And Balkaz gives them poisoned water gourds with Zeg's seal on it so the slavers will blame Zeg and attack him. And shockingly, while that plan takes a little time, it actually works perfectly. Yeah. Well, you know, and that is a, a minor thing, uh, even in a movie like this, where having your villains do some smart things that do work yes. is necessary. Yes! You can't just say, oh, when, when the hero shows up, it will all go in his favor or her favor. That That is not uh, as much fun. You know? Absolutely. You, you need that broken glass on the ground for John McClane to step on. Yeah, 
Yeah, exa- yes, absolutely. After this, Kane successfully rescues Nadja from Zeg's castle. Now, a couple things about Nadja. Uh, she's got a scar on her hand, like the emblem that's on Kane's sword in the archway in town. And so that's, and she makes that reference to the fact that at once she may have, at one time she may have been able to command, but those days are gone. I also want to point out she never wears a shirt, not in the whole movie. Like, even later, when she's totally free, she just puts on a nicer cloak. It's not like, oh, this is her, she's in captivity, so they don't let her wear a shirt. No, no, this is just her style. Yeah, I I also noted that, yeah, once she's not a prisoner, she just winds up in a nicer outfit that also is completely, like, naked making. Um but you know that that that's the part of this where you're like I I do understand what this movie was doing in the marketplace. Um, yes, I mean I will sound crazy, and I'm sure there are many people who would disagree with me. But the character of Nadja, the sorceress, who while also being uh, treated as uh, you know some nudity in the movie to entice uh, you know audience men, there's eye candy uh, there, Rob. That's there's true. Eye candy. But she is a real character who has power as well, and who yes! isn't just a doormat and a plaything. Absolutely. Um, Kane, after freeing Nadja, then goes and captures Balkaz's lizard companion, and he brings him to Zeg. And the next day, Zeg demands Balkaz leave, or he'll kill the lizard. And Balkaz then reveals that he, in fact, now has Nadja, which leads to my favorite moment in this movie, the prisoner exchange, where oh the, yeah, Nadja and the lizard on uh, they they do this, and it's this slow. It's played entirely straight. There's it, it is super dramatic. The lizard is apparently bipedal, which I love, and Nadja and the lizard walk across the square at the same time with. It's all slow and dramatic, like it's something out of Bridge of Spies, and it is absolutely incredible. You will believe a puppet can walk. You will. You absolutely will. I love also the fact that the lizard is wearing more clothing than than the sorceress is hysterical. Well, they're cold-blooded, Chris. They oh, yeah, they, can't, no, right. uh, re- right. they can't regulate their own body heat, so it just makes sense within the within the world. Uh, <laughs> I was a little confused at this point of like how Nadja got back, you know, got into like uh, Balkaz's. It, I think it was it was the plan all along, but I wasn't entirely clear. There's a there's a weird like bit. I feel like there might have been some stuff cut out where I don't yeah. I didn't quite follow that part of the movie because well because we know he sold the puppet to Zeg. I assumed yeah. he quote unquote sold uh, you know Nadja to Balkaz with the knowing that he had just cost both of them a bunch of money and they were going to wind up exactly where they started again. Yeah, and but there's a scene where he's talking to another guy, and he's like, you know, she's the most, uh, you know, she, she's the most courageous woman I've ever met. She's a, a woman of great courage. So it, it, indicating maybe she was in on it, like, she, like, listen, yeah, yeah, this is what sure. we're gonna do. Like, he didn't just, you know, the lizard was not in on it at all. No, and but this was not Kane selling her out. Like, if anything, it was uh, they were in cahoots for sure. 
Almost immediately after Zeg recaptures Nadia, does Kane rescue her a second time? But this time he has to contend with the Protector. Yeah. Uh, which is this, it's this multi-tentacled creature that lives below the floor of the cell. It's vaguely Lovecraftian in that it has lots of tentacles and eyes. It shoots like the tentacles up through the grates of the floor, which is kind of, that's like a cool moment. Uh, although truthfully, uh, Kane kills it pretty easily, but but you know just to, to add a little spice to that second rescue. Yes, well you know you can't do exactly the same thing, so uh, they upped it a notch for sure. Uh, and and Zeg soon figures out that Kane is the one responsible for Nadia's escape, leading to what is probably the the most the signature scene of this movie. Now we have to backtrack a moment because I want to just talk for a second about the poster for this movie. The poster for this movie from artist yes. Boris Vallejo features a jacked oiled up David Carradine with a woman at his feet. He's he's he never wear, he always wears more clothes in the movie than he does on the poster. But they wanted to they wanted to make him look like Schwarzenegger and Conan. But upon closer inspection, the woman on the poster has four breasts. And while we see quite a bit of Nadia's breasts, she only has two. So I'm sitting here. I'm watching this movie, Rob, and I'm like is this just something they put on the poster? So many movies will promise something on the poster and then you're just disappointed. Of course, that there's no way that'll be in the movie. Remember a couple weeks ago with Sorceress, I was all disappointed because I didn't get a vulture god. Or, or a sorceress. You didn't get that either. <laughs> in this case, <laughs> in this case, we have this banquet sequence and Kane is sitting next to Zeg, and in comes the evening's entertainment, which is a dancer. And the dancer comes out, and sure enough, she's got two pairs. And I have to say, it's a really good hand. Well, Chris, I realized something. This movie came out in 1984, correct? Correct. Which means that historically, and I'd never seen this before, so I didn't know this, that this four-breasted dancer... It beats Total Recall by six years and one breast. And yep. I never knew that. It's amazing. And and I got to say, my wife and I watched this scene together. And it, 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 you know what? We both said those two extra breasts look terrific. Like the makeup job that they did. Like it doesn't look, it doesn't look like, you know, hey, those are her real breasts. And then they're the, I mean, you know, which ones are, are the fake ones because of where they are in her body. But um, yeah, it, it's it's honestly really good. And, and you know, Zeg is clearly into it by the way he's fondling his sword, although although uh, Kane is not as much into it. But eventually the dancer comes up to Kane, and, and here's something I'm still not clear on. She shoots something out of her body and latches on to Kane and, and knocks him out. And my like I said, my wife and I watched this scene together, and... We have no idea what hit him or where it came from on her body. Uh, but he falls unconscious right in the middle of the four-breasted lady's chest. So bravo for that. Uh, but yeah, we watched that a couple of times. Like my wife and I are watching this. She didn't watch the whole movie with me, but I'm like, honey, you got to see this. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is, uh, it's pretty crazy. And uh and because that's the point at which Zeg knows that Kane's not necessarily on his side for real. Yes, right? yes. Because then they, they they beat the crap out of him, you know, and they lock him in a cell. But then, but then, 
But then Kane escapes because the people who locked him up are literal morons. Like he climbs up in the rafters of the cell. They open up the door and they think he's gone. And then he sneaks out when their backs are turned. I'm like, you people are idiots. Just look up. Well, the problem here is that that is, uh, you know, the character played by Anthony uh, with the longest. Anthony right? DeLonga, yeah. And who you may know uh, if you've been watching uh, our films uh, that we've discussed is Blade from Masters of the Universe. Right. So he yes. has had a, a a storied career of of not looking where he should around <laughs> the corner <laughs> to, to, so that he misses the hero. Yes. Yeah, Anthony DeLongas, he was a, you know, an actor, a stunt person. And he did he did like the stunt coordination and and was the he was the, basically the swordmaster on this movie as well as playing um Zeg's second in command. But yeah, he And he's good in this movie. <laughs> just like look up, man, look up. Um anyway, Kane makes it back to Nadja and she forges the sort of of Ura, which I think is really just his sword but making it better, but in any case now he can cut through an anvil with it. Um, and you know, we have the final confrontation between Zeg and Balkaz, uh, which Zeg kills Balkaz and now seems victorious. But just as he seems victorious, the slavers return and capture or kill all of Zeg's men. So Balkaz's plan with the, 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 the water bottles and frame and the frame up works perfectly. Um, and it's it's fantastic. And then Kane shows up with his his magic his now magic sword and takes on the slavers and the rest of Zeg's men. At one point, Zeg's number two, played by Anthony DeLongas, gets a hold of the sword of Ura. And interestingly, it doesn't seem to cut through everything the way it does when Kane's got it, <laughs> because it's only the sword of Ura in his hand. Exactly. I believe. That's the message of the movie, I think. Yeah. The other message is that if there had been an Academy Award for Best Fog Machine, yes. uh, I would give it to Kane's entrance at the end of this movie for the Absolutely. Big fight it's so the, good. The fog and the dust blowing and he's coming out of it all. Uh, I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a sword and sorcery movie, so I think it's appropriate to say it's pretty badass. It is pretty badass. It is It is definitely. Um, in the end, the villagers regain control of the village. Nadia has still not put on a shirt. Uh, and in classic Western style, Kane leaves to continue walking this this other planet with the twin suns. It's not Earth, but, but it continues walking and on his journey. And unfortunately, honestly, unfortunately, we never got more adventures of Kane. I, I mean, I... I this is the one you do a sequel to. I, this I, I would have watched David Carradine in in you know like three, four, five uh, you know sword and sorcery pictures. I think that would have been great. I too would have loved that, but you know maybe on Earth too, Chris. Maybe on Earth too that he yes. There we yeah. go. Um, anyway, I I really like again. It's both of these movies today were made. For, for largely the same reason. They're, they're inexpensive films. There's a degree of, of action. There's a degree of titillation. But it's interesting to me how the tone changes everything. Because the tone of Deathstalker is kind of nasty and it, it it's not it's it's a joyless it's just a joyless slog to watch. Whereas the Warrior and the Sorceress is is fantastic. I mean it's not the best movie I've ever seen, but I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I could imagine myself watching The Warrior and the Sorceress again down the road at some point. Absolutely. It, there's enough 
there's enough fun in it. There's enough, uh, the filmmaking is, is doing the best with what it's got in a way that's actually like pretty cool. Um, and, you know, I, I think also it gets a few more of, and maybe it's that extra year where yeah. it, it gets a little bit more of the Conan uh, sword and sorcery tropes down in a good yeah. way. Yeah, no, in a very good way. Yeah, no, I, I, I really liked it. So that's, this is not, these two, by the way, are not the last two Roger Corman. We have a little bit more Roger Corman a little later in a series because he made a lot of sword and sorcery movies over the course of the 80s. Like, he made like, you know, seven or eight of them. So we can't cover them all, but we'll at least cover a, a little bit more uh, towards as we get towards the end. Um, which I think that also brings us to the end of today's episode. Um, and we hope you've enjoyed the show and that you join us again next week when we journey back to Italy. Ciao. The land of Ator the Fighting Eagle for a double, double feature of two Hercules movies starring the Incredible Hulk himself, Lou Ferrigno. Both movies produced by one of our favorite studios, Canon Films, Woo-hoo! and written and directed by Luigi Cosi of Star Crash fame. So this is definitely going to be an interesting one. Gird your loins. Get ready for Hercules and Hercules 2. Yeah, it's it's going to be something. Thank you so much for listening. Again, we are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. As always, we ask you to tell your friends about the show, tell your enemies about the show, tell your local death stalker about the show, and join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another. Get Me Another.